0: The University of Tennessee Howard H. Baker Jr. Center for Public Policy and the Knox County Public Library are partners in a community study of the book, Justice as Fairness, a Restatement by John Rawls. The following recording is part one in a five-part series. In this episode, Joe Cook of the UT College of Law leads us through the fundamental ideas of Rawls' Theory of Justice.
1: Um, Welcome to the Baker Center. Um, This is a new venture for the Baker Center, and it's our first book read. And not only is it our first public community book read in collaboration with Knox County Public Libraries, which is wonderful in and of itself, um, this is a five-part read of one book, which is, I think, even more extraordinary. And as the book is quite extraordinary, I think we probably need the five-part um, program. Now, I assume that those of you who are here are looking forward to being a uh, more informed participant in the seminar that will be held um, here on the 26th and 27th when additional experts are going to explore um, Rawls's jurisprudence and political philosophy in, in greater depth. Today, we are really lucky to have Professor Joseph Cook from the College of Law, who I'm proud to claim as a friend and colleague of 38 years duration. Um, I have known um, Joe as a student of constitutional law, criminal procedure, and the such, but ultimately as really an avid and astute student of John Rawls as part of his long-standing personal and teaching interest in jurisprudence. Our hope for tonight is that Joe will help us get our bearings on John Rawls as reflected in, in the book we're reading and then also be available to take questions from you about the book and then obviously we plan to follow up on tonight's discussion with um, four additional ones each on an additional part of the book and by the end of which hopefully we will have all read it and have a better understanding of it than we probably would be able to gain just reading it on our own. So please join me in welcoming Joe. Co- Joe. Thank you.
2: I do not pretend to a comprehensive understanding of Rawls, though Otis and my students teach me a little more every year. And the the, the depth of Rawls's work is of such a nature that one never fully probes it and one understands new and different connections and significances every time one digs into it. A Theory of Justice, which was Rawls's primary work, was published In 1971, it is probably the most influential book in legal theory published in the 20th century. It is not an easy book. The British philosopher Brian Barry once said, the reader who sets himself to comprehend the precise relation between the elements in Rawls' theory should not be surprised if he notices steam coming out of his ears. Uh, I think all of us have had times of... Great frustration in attempting to grapple with Rawls, but in the long run, we've all found it to be well worth it. At the time of its publication, Rawls was generally recognized as an idealist, uh, his most significant precursor being the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, and theory was widely viewed as bringing philosophical idealism to the study of jurisprudence and the law. For the previous century, law had been dominated by positivism and utilitarianism, or in its uh, legal form, American legal realism in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, primarily. Theory was thus a radical departure from conventional legal theory. It has, in large measure, set the agenda for scholarly debate ever since. It has attracted attention in a wide range of academic disciplines, not simply philosophy and law, but political science, economics, sociology, even theology, and has been adapted to their own uses in many other areas such as environmental law and uh, social planning and uh, genetics and uh, the list goes on. Sometime after theory was published, um, Rawls disavowed any linkage to Kantian philosophy. Most explicitly in a significant article published in the journal Philosophy and Public Affairs entitled Justice as Fairness, Political, Not Metaphysical, Rawls thereby denied any claim of universality to his theory, noting with characteristic modesty that the title of his book was A Theory, Not The Theory of Law. I think initially one should appreciate the parameters of what Rawls does in theory. And I'm aware of the fact that justice is fairness is our primary focus, but I've got to set up theory first and I'll tell you how they're interrelated. One, the focus of Rawls's work is upon major social institutions. It is not upon individuals. You don't read Rawls to learn how individual parties can settle disputes or how they should behave in a just society. You inferentially and incidentally get that from time to time, inevitably, but this is a book that's focused primarily on the institutions of a society and the manner in which they should be uh, designed in order to achieve what Rawls believes to be the optimum of justice. Two, Rawls is concerned with justice in a particular society. He's not concerned with relations between societies. So, except for one brief foray late in his life into the area, Rawls doesn't talk about international law, international relations. It is uh, the more narrowly confined social compact notion of how a discrete group of people could form a legitimate social compact to achieve a just society. Three. Rawls constructs a model for the ideal, perfectly just society, what he refers to as strict compliance theory. He's not involved in changing the existing order, or the so-called partial compliance theory. Or more practically, he's not concerned in this work with getting from here to there. Now that is often quite frustrating to people. Uh, frequently the question is raised, what practical significance does it have if all he's talking about is an ideal model? And I think the answer to that is, uh, for me at least, that what Rawls is suggesting to us is the same thing that all idealistic philosophers suggest from Plato on down. What you do first is you design what you think to be the optimum goal, the, the perfect society. You set this up as the model to which you then address your efforts. Getting there is just an entirely different problem, and and there certainly is a lot in this book that directs one's attention to manners in which we can grapple with that. But Rawls is not concerned in this pragmatic sense of changing the world. He's concerned with convincing you that if all things were optimally designed, this would be the most just society. If he can sell you on that, then he can leave it to others to work out the mechanics of how one might change the world so that it would uh, accommodate these expectations. He says uh, early in the theory, the primary subject of justice is the basic structure of society, or more exactly the way in which major social institutions distribute fundamental rights and duties and determine the division of advantage from social cooperation. Over his career Rawls published, at best, three books, maybe three and a half, I think three, maybe less than three actually. One really wonders how he ever got tenure. I I recall when I was a graduate student at Yale, some young professor was denied tenure in the liberal arts, as I recall, and the slam against him was that he only published two books, and uh, students in those days picketed these things they they were actually considered important when favored professors were uh, given the door. And one of the pictures in front of the administration building carried a sign reading, Homer was a two-book man, which has always stuck with me ever since. Um, But Rawls, uh, in terms of major publications, in terms of books, uh, first of all goes with a, a theory of justice, which is the big one. 1971, revised in 1999, the revision is very minor. In order to find out what has changed, you've got to do an interlinear study page by page because he adds a phrase here, clarifies something here, changes a little something there, makes no major uh, alterations. Same uh, section headings, by and large, I would say 95% of the work is as it appeared in the original version. Secondly, in 1993, he published this book, called Political Liberalism. Now, Political Liberalism is indeed a book, but that's a little misleading in that what it is is it's a collection of articles that he published after theory up until the point of this publication. It is not a systematic philosophical book the way theory is. It, it deals with discrete problems, some of which he, he's responding to his critics, some of which he's expanding on notions that appear in theory, some of which he's correcting mistakes, some of which are brand new ideas. But it, it is a compilation of subsequent publications in the professional journals. It is not itself a cohesively organized book. Then the third one is the one that uh, we have chosen for this discussion, and that's Justice is Fairness, a Restatement published in 2001. Justice is Fairness, uh, if, if one wanted to be pejorative about it, you could say it's a theory of justice light. Uh, but I think that might be a little unfair. It, it, it is, it is too, a difficult book, but it's more accessible than theory was. It, in large measure, summarizes a lot of what's going on in theory. It also, however, responds to criticism. It admits to mistakes. It expands the discussion of some things that were unclear or that were misunderstood, and in some instances, it adds new stuff that didn't appear in theory, some of which was being developed in political liberalism. Finally there's a little book that uh, came out uh, in 1999 called The Law of Peoples, which I mentioned earlier is his foray into international law. It it has not been something that's been a particular uh, uh, widespread uh, analysis or response Uh, received little attention. It's only about 128 pages long. And then the, the second part of this book is an article, a very a significant article from the Chicago Law Review called The Idea of Public Reason Revisited, uh, and that probably is the more significant of the two things in that book. But, so that's the scope of Rawls's publications. Other than that, a lot of articles, uh, more than appear in political liberalism, there is uh, a collection of Rawls's works which is uh, quite thick, in which all of his articles have been put together. All right, now, turning to justice's fairness. Early on, Rawls poses this as the question. What would a just democratic society be like under reasonable, favorable, but still possible historical conditions? What ideals and principles would such a society try to realize given the circumstances of justice in a democratic culture as we know them? These circumstances include the fact of reasonable pluralism, This condition is permanent as it persists indefinitely under free democratic institutions. So the the, the first notion, and and by and large, uh, my role this evening is to introduce a number of uh, uh, Rawls' concepts, all of which will be explored probably in greater depth in the subsequent presentations over the next uh, four weeks. Uh, But there are uh, a series of notions which, which are prominent in Rawlsian theory. Uh, The fact of reasonable pluralism is one of the first points he makes. In a sense, it's sort of an obvious point. Uh, But it highlights from him the uh, necessity of coming up with something that will bring us all together. Whenever anyone wants to interrupt with a question, comment, please do so. He says on the fact of reasonable pluralism, I believe that a democratic society is not and cannot be a community. Whereby a community I mean a body of persons united and affirming the same comprehensive or partially comprehensive doctrine. The fact of reasonable pluralism, which characterizes a society with free institutions, makes this impossible. This is the fact of profound and irreconcilable differences in citizens' reasonable, comprehensive, religious, and philosophical conceptions of the world and in their views of the moral and aesthetic values to be sought in human life. All right. What, what does that mean and what is its significance? Anybody want to give a shot here? I, what is the significance of, reason, uh, of his recognition and his emphasis on reasonable pluralism? That, As he puts it, uh, the fact of reasonable pluralism, which characterizes a society with free institutions, makes uh, what he refers to a community impossible. A community being uh, a group which shares a wide range of values. So what, what we will come to refer to in Rawlsian theory as a theory of the good. Different religious beliefs. Uh, some people like art museums, some like stock car races. There comes a point in which collective assets must be allocated to support, or maybe, maybe in Rawls. Rawls probably takes the position they shouldn't be used at all to support different theories of the good, such as uh, the city underwriting a football stadium or an art museum or a symphony orchestra or an opera, things that will not survive but with a substantial amount of support beyond what they are able to generate on their own. Now, Rawls says the people who want to go to operas and the people who want to go to stock car racing rarely overlap. They may, some will, for sure, but there are different theories of the good. The nature of society is, and and a a democratic society, is we have this broad panoply of theories of the good which are irreconcilable in the sense that they can't all be maximized. It probably is most typically recognized, the, the, the potential tension here is recognized in regard to religion, that a substantial amount of the community the populace as a whole, belongs to a community that uh, would like to see the Bible read in class or the Ten Commandments posted in the courthouse. This might be an overwhelming number, but nonetheless, it is a theory of the good. It's not shared by everybody. Even if you go into a society which is largely monolithic, such as one of the Middle Eastern societies in which uh, the... uh, Muslim religion is overwhelmingly dominant, uh, there will be dissenters, or if there are not actually dissenters, there must be the possibility available that somebody can change their mind and become a dissenter, even, even if at one point you're all committed to the same theory of the good. Uh, if you are a democratic society, then the, the fact of pluralism must be recognized, and the fact that pluralism creates conflict and that one of the large roles of government is to figure how we can sufficiently balance these varying pursuits that people have of good, Uh, some strongly held, about which, if they had the power, they would uh, skew the public money, the public power in such a manner to emphasize and to accentuate and to promote their particular theory of the good. All right? Yes
3: the problem of politics, I think, is the problem of difference, right? And so to the extent we live not in a pluralistic society, but in in a monistic one, we eliminate the problem of politics. The problem of politics is, or the challenge, the reason for politics is to find a way to live together, notwithstanding our differences. The problem of justice is the problem of, of difference. So it has, that's why I think that has to be
2: okay yes
3: the concept of reasonableness reasonable pluralism might bear out in the way that we protect the minorities and we set aside um, particular classes that can't be discriminated against they fall outside the norm and so that may be a reflection of this uh, reasonable pluralism concept
2: Uh, that's correct and as one will discover in studying Rawls, Rawls makes no choices between theories of the good. He His concern is to create a society in which people can believe whatever they want to believe. They can believe a wide range, for example, of religion, uh, religious doctrines, most of which presumably any, any, any adherent to any religious doctrine would, I assume, assume say that most of the others are wrong. Maybe they're all wrong, but it doesn't make a difference. For Rawls, what Rawls says is that the right to pursue one's particular theory of the good, whether false or true, is itself uh, the sort of, of uh, right that one, or, or power, he refers to it in some points as saying, one should be able to exercise in a democratic society. Now, one of the notions that ties in with this, which also appears early in the book, he refers to the two moral powers. This is, these are descriptive of human beings. He says there are two moral powers which are exercised by all humans, or in order for us to have a, an effective democratic collective, there needs to be. The first one is the capacity for a sense of justice. If you don't have a capacity for a sense of justice, uh, we might as well just stop the discussion. No, no point in going any further unless we are jointly concerned with a just society in which uh, it's we, it's not just about ourselves. It's about our our fellow human beings and their needs, wants, desires, goals, and so forth. And we want to come up with a solution which adequately addresses the needs of everybody. He says the capacity to understand, to apply, and to act from, and not merely to in accordance with. The principles of political justice that specify the fair terms of social cooperation is the capacity for a sense of justice. You need that. The second one, which there really is not any dispute, is what he calls the capacity for a conception of the good. Everybody has that. They may may not call it that, but they have something that is the driving motivation in their lives. They may have several things. Uh, It may be different from everybody else. It may be shared by a large group of people. But he says, the capacity for a conception of the good is the capacity to have, to revise, and rationally pursue a conception of the good. Such a conception is an ordered family of final ends and aims which specifies a person's conception of what is of value in human life or alternatively of what is regarded as a fully worthwhile life. Your theory of the good might be to become the greatest basketball player in the world. That could be a theory of the good. Your theory of the good could be to uh, read all of Tolstoy or anything anything you set as a goal in your life, and you may have a series of theories of the good, series of different things you want to achieve, uh, and one of the roles of the state is to accommodate and to support your opportunity to pursue whatever your theory of the good happens to be, and once again, there is no uh, judgmental element here. Uh, there's, there's one point in which Rawls is, is, is making this point about not being judgmental between theories of the good. He tries to come up with what he thinks may be the most meaningless life plan, and he refers to someone who counts blades of grass. Crazy thing to do, but nonetheless, if that's what makes you happy, if that's what you want to do with your life, then in some way we should be able to facilitate it and allow you to do it. We shouldn't make it a crime, if you will or otherwise penalize you for choosing to pursue something that the rest of us may find to be pointless. Ours is not to say you make your own decision regarding your conception of the good. All right. The tie-in here is that once you are able to see the nature of the human problem of what people want and desire and that of which they are capable then you begin to be working in the direction of how society collectively should grapple with it all right let's let 's talk about the social compact theory and Rawls 's spin on that, which is one of the most famous aspects of, of Rawls' theory the original position and the veil of ignorance early on in a the theory of justice, Rawls says. My aim is to present a conception of justice which generalizes and carries to a higher level of abstraction the familiar theory of the social contract as found, say, in Locke, Rousseau, and Kant. Now, if you've ever read any Kant, the the idea that somebody should carry Kant to a higher level of abstraction is mind-boggling, but the fact of the matter is that Rawls indeed accomplishes that, among other things along the way. The idea of the social compact theory goes back at least as far as Socrates, who explained to Crito that he would take the hemlock and end his life because, having reaped the benefits of living in Athens, he was obligated to honor its legal decree, Uh, notwithstanding the fact that he had been brought up on bogus charges by a kangaroo court. He should never have been convicted, but nonetheless, he chose to live here. He chose to be uh, protected by Athens' armies against invaders. He was able to spend his time in the streets uh, ridiculing the powers that be and so forth, and he could not now turn his back on them and say because they screwed up, he no longer was bound by their laws. To wit, he he comes to the point of actually describing it as a social contract that he has made with the city. Locke and Rousseau expanded the idea to explain the way in which societies are formed. In its rudimentary form, as John Locke developed it, human beings are initially in a state of nature. They are perfectly free, absolutely equal. The state of nature is governed by the law of nature, which says that no one may harm another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions. Laws are of little consequence unless they can be enforced, and in the state of nature, each individual has the power to punish violators of the natural law. In practice, of course, that doesn't work so well, because human beings are likely to be less than objective in enforcing the laws when they have a personal interest at stake. And so the parties form a social compact whereby they surrender the enforcement of the law to an independent and presumably objective arbiter who will give them if you will, justice. Kant took the notion of the social compact theory to a further step by eliminating this historical context. There's a, in, in Locke and Rousseau, there's sort of a Gilligan's Island aspect of this. You get together and you parcel out things that people do well and then you uh, work collectively together so that you all benefit. Kant, Kant says an original contract is, in fact, an idea of reason. Now we're moving in the direction of Rawls at this point which nonetheless has undoubted practical reality, for it can oblige every legislator to frame his laws in such a way that they could have been produced by the united will of a whole nation. Rawls replaces the state of nature and the idea of reason with what he calls the original position. What does he gain from that? What advantages does he gain? Uh, There's a lot of emotional baggage that ties in with Locke and Rousseau. Locke, as I'm sure you know, is, provides the battle cry for the American Revolution. The Declaration of Independence is, uh, uh, for all practical purposes, uh, plagiarized from Locke. Uh, the identical wording is used to justify the power of revolution when an oppressor becomes so unbearable that it deprives human beings of their rudimentary rights. Rousseau does the same thing for the French Revolution. Rawls wants to make this a lot more dispassionate, that's one thing he wants to do, So so he uses this rather neutral term, the original position. He says that he wants to disabuse the reader's mind of thinking of the original contract as the basis of any particular society. He says the original contract will afford principles of justice for the basic structure of society. They are principles that free and rational persons concerned to further their own interest would accept in an initial position of equality as defining the fundamental terms of the association. These principles are to regulate all future agreements. They specify the kinds of social cooperation that can be entered into and the forms of government that can be established. One neat thing about Rawls's approach to this problem is, we, we generally, when we look at Locke and Rousseau and the social compact theorists generally, the thought is, here's how societies are formed. This is how the pilgrims did it in North America. This is how, in other situations, starting from uh, point zero, uh, a government is set up. Rawls' original position is something that that you and I can return to at any time we want. If, for example, if sometime along the way uh, we want to address the question of what is the most just solution for health care for all our citizens, or the best immigration policy, or appropriate responses to terrorism, or the portion of our population living below the poverty level. We can use this intellectual device of the original position as a means of grappling with potential solutions to contemporary social problems. You don't have to go back and start all over again and say, well, let's, let's have a revolution, abolish everything, and then see if we can do better the next time. You don't have to do that. You can use this, this intellectual device at any point along the way as a means of attempting to rationally grapple with serious problems. And in doing so, part of the key to the rational process in the original position is what Rawls calls the veil of ignorance. Uh, This drew a lot of lightning at the time he he proposed it, and still many critics are uh, not convinced. But it goes like this When we get together in the original position, uh, there's still a sense that we are collectively looking for solutions to problems, just as the other social contract theorists are doing. We eliminate from consideration all information about ourselves. That is, we have a veil of ignorance in respect to personal characteristics total, an opaque veil at this point. We do not know who we are. We don't know race, ethnicity, sex, natural endowments, intelligence, anything. What we say is we know that there are people out there with a wide range of capacities, physical and intellectual and a wide range of uh, strong feelings, attitudes, beliefs. But we don't know which one of them we are. And what we want to do is work out a society in which, once we put it in place, we will be comfortable in saying, when the veil is lifted and we find out which one of those people we are, we'll be satisfied. We can live with it. We're all familiar with the notion of justice is blind with a blindfold across the symbol of justice and so forth. And, and in large measure, this is just carrying this to an extreme. This is eliminating every consideration. Now, what Rawls is saying here, if you want to deal with tax policy, you don't want to go into the original position and know whether you're rich or poor. Uh, if If you're... Uh, tobacco farmer, you're no longer in the original position knowing that uh, certain decisions made deprive you of your livelihood. You do want to know the fact that there are rich and poor people and there are tobacco farmers and everything else. And you want to see to it that as best we can achieve it, they all get justice. Uh, But we do it from this elevated standpoint in which we are not arguing our own case. We are not attempting to maximize the best we can get for our own position. Now, on on one side, we thereby eliminate any personal element to the process of analysis. On the other side, we have available to us the total compendium of human knowledge. That is, everything generally, or as one critic says, uh, the people in the original position don't know anything about themselves, but they've read a lot of books. And and that's that's a fair approximation of what's going on here, that that you have an enormous library. In other words, you you benefit from the total wealth of human knowledge, which is not to say that it's not controversial. It's not to say that there are different views of economics and different views of chemistry and biology and political theory and anything else. And... In the process, the answers will not necessarily always be clear, but the best we can do is the best we can do with what we've got and what we know at this point in human history. We address questions from the perspective of what would be the most just outcome for every person and we do so with a full availability of all knowledge which could be relevant to reaching that judgment.
4: Uh, could you comment on the difference between Rawls' position and Kant's categorical imperative where he says, act only according to a maxim, that which at the same time you would wish everyone would follow? It sounds very similar.
2: Well, the simple answer is, that uh, Kant is talking about personal ethics and Rawls doesn't talk about personal ethics. It may very well be that Rawls would say the people who will most effectively participate in my development of a system of justice will be Kantians that have that view. There's no, no incompatibility here. It's just that they're talking about different things. Kant, in, in uh, the categorical imperative, is is speaking in terms of what I individually am morally obligated to do. Now, let me let me bring in a, a, a contrasting example here. One of one of the things Kant says is an example of the paragraph, if, if I recall correctly, is that one is obligated to maximize their own capabilities for the benefit of humanity. Words to that effect. So that if, uh, for example, one has the capacity to be a great novelist, uh, Kant would say. They're morally obligated to do it. I think. I think he would say I don't. I'm, I don't want to go too far out of limb on Kantian philosophy here, but I, I think he he does place a heavy burden on individuals to make the best they can out of their lives. Uh, Rawls would say, on the contrary, that a person might have the capacity to be the finest novelist, and if they were to do so, we all would benefit from it. But we cannot require them to do we. we collectively, publicly, cannot require them to do that. As a matter of, of personal ethic, he wouldn't disagree with Kant, but he would say uh, the state cannot compel anybody to be a good person. And if Tolstoy prefers to be a drunken sailor, that's his choice. Uh, it's not our choice. I, I'll give you a personal example I have here, one, one that, that uh, occurs to me, I use it in class from time to time, my person I consider to be probably the greatest comedic actor of my generation was Peter Sellers. Uh, Peter Sellers died probably 20 years before he should have, probably had another 10 movies or so in him. But he had health problems. He was told he had health problems. I I think it was uh, lung cancer. I'm not sure. But he was told he shouldn't smoke, and he smoked. He did a lot of things to shorten his life. And at one point, uh, it really made me mad. I said, damn it, Sellers shouldn't have done that. He's depriving me of watching him act. And that's just not right. Rawls would say to me, it had nothing to do with you. Peter Sellers can, if, if he chooses to live a shorter life and gets great pleasure out of whatever vices he engages in, that's his choice. Insofar as, as our collective obligations are concerned, we may choose to encourage people to pursue things that we consider to be desirable, but we can't say that they're in any way obligated to serve our collective needs. That's the distinction between the, the Kantian uh, categorical imperative notion on one hand of personal duty and the notion in Rawls's theory that we don't make choices between theories of the good. If Tolstoy would prefer to count blades of grass, it's a great loss to all of us. But that's his call, not our call. You can't require people to do good things.
5: So according to Rawls, that applies across the board. Like, say, if you're the only doctor in a community and you decide to go on vacation during uh, an epidemic, for Rawls, thinking that would be fine, even though say a doctor is vital to the survival of the community.
2: Well, I don't, I don't think it, no, it would not be fine with Rawls, but it, it would be fine for purposes of this theory.
5: That's, that's what I meant.
2: Th- that's all, all I mean. I mean, Rawls's personal ethics are probably pretty close to Kant's, I imagine. He's, he's done a lot of Kant, Kantian work. But, but yes, now, we may choose to reward people in terms of the extent to which they do things which improved a lot of the the least advantaged is the concept in which this arises but but the incentives are different from uh compulsion well all right let me getting returning to the original position behind the veil of ignorance the original task is to come up with some first principles that is If we know all we can possibly know about human nature, what are the things most important? What would people universally desire? And what is the fairest way to treat people? Rawls comes up with two principles, first and second principle. The second principle actually has two parts. We frequently think of them as three principles, but actually he sees them as one and two. The first principle is the principle of liberty. It looks very much like our Bill of Rights, uh, a little stronger, and, and maybe maybe some of the maybe some of the specifics aren't in it, like right to bear arms or right not to harbor troops in your homes, and a few of these minor things it probably wouldn't be at, at the at the level of first principles. But the way he comes about this is by studying human nature pervasively. Throughout lots of societies, we come up with some common denominators here of what is important to people. One of the things that always works its way up to the top is religion freedom of religion, freedom to worship and to believe or not to believe, if you will, as you see fit. And this will have a particularly significant role in First Principle Liberty. First Principle Liberty also encompasses the expression, speech, press written communications. It also encompasses participation in the political process, that is, self-governance, if you will. There are a cluster of rights that, and, and, and the interesting thing here is that uh, whereas the uh, Locke, Rousseau, and that gang all think about these as natural rights, some sort of God-given thing, Rawls isn't going to go the natural rights route. He's going to say, empirically speaking, I go out, we go out, we collect the data, and we see that people get very upset if they're not allowed to worship the way they want to. If, if the state says, you can't worship that god, or you can't worship on that day, or you can't do that, which is uh, central to your religion, and so long as, and this is very consistent with American constitutional theory, As long as your exercise of your rights is not impinging upon the equivalent exercise of rights of other people, we're going to let you do it. We're going to support you. You can't throw virgins in the volcano, but that's because you're depriving them of their constitutional rights. But so long as your particular claims are such that they don't impinge upon the free exercise of rights of other people, we don't care if they're stupid. We don't care if they think you're wrong. We don't care even if they're bigoted. Insofar as your beliefs are concerned, the right of freedom of religion is uh, sacrosanct. And and so the first principle deals with that. And the second principle that we come up with is, uh, as I say, it's, it's two-pronged. The first prong is fair equality of opportunity, which bears a certain resemblance to our equal protection clause, but is much stronger. Uh, it takes more seriously the importance that people have equal shots at all the preferred positions in society. I'm not talking about official positions, governmental positions, that of course, but also people have equal shots to be professors at Harvard and football players at USC. The, The process by which individuals have equivalent opportunities to pursue whatever their theory of good happens to be should be guaranteed with equal emphasis to everybody. That, as I say, is considerably stronger than the equal protection clause, but nonetheless it's fairly familiar. When we teach this, we say, you're not having trouble with the first principle of liberty. It's going to feel like home. It's going to be First, first Amendment writ large. You're not going to have too much trouble with the Equal protection clause. Then we get to the other half of the second principle, which is the difference principle, and that is, how do we distribute benefits in society? In other words, how do we divide the pie? Uh, that's where the rub comes, and that's where the, some will see this as an extremely radical notion, although it may not be. It may be in the long run that it, uh, in large measure, turns out to be sort of a rationalization of the, the capitalistic process, although I think it is true that the Rawlton difference principle, as he calls it, will. Serve to collapse the grave disparities, the greatest disparities between the haves and the have-nots. Uh, no doubt that it'll do that. the The difference principle again begins with the notion: okay, we start with everybody gets an equal piece of the pie. Now the question is, how do we depart from that? Now, one of the exa- This is not a Rawls example, but this is one example that one commentator has used, and it's fairly uh, vivid. Uh, suppose you have a, a fishing boat, and you've got uh, X number of employees from the captain down to the guys that throw the fish into the hampers, the well of the ship. We start out with the notion uh, that everybody gets an equal piece of the, of the pie. We, we bring the cargo in, we get the check for it, we divide it equally among everybody. But then we discover that you'll probably catch more fish if you have a good captain who knows how to manage people, knows how to find fish, so forth. And so maybe you'll give him a a larger piece of the pie because in doing so, the guy below him, all the people below him will also get larger pieces because now we're increasing the size of the pie. And then we end up with gradations in the uh, uh, remuneration of various positions based on their contribution to the overall effort. And that way we end up with no longer giving everybody equal shares, but nonetheless, the ultimate test for Rawls is is the guy at the bottom getting the largest share he could possibly get. It's called the maximin rule. Have we maximized the minimum? And unless that's true, then we've got to keep working at it. If the excessive pay at the top is such that if you cut off a few million dollars from the CEO and redistributed it to the bottom, and the company would run just as well, or you could get a CEO that would work for half that price as effectively, or whatever the explanation might be, if there's some way we can redistribute the return from this endeavor so as to improve the position of the lowest-ranking party in the hierarchy, the pecking order, then that's what we should do. And you you continue to fine-tune this until you achieve that particular outcome. A lot of this, I'm sure, is going to be explored with far more greater detail than I can give it tonight in one of the subsequent sessions. But I just wanted to introduce you to the, the two principles which Rawls says would be derived in the original position, if we don't know who we are, if we don't know who we are, then the thought is we would we would prefer to come up with a system in which if we turn out to be the worst person in society, we are better off than we could be under any other conceivable plan. And that's the maximin principle. That by engaging into a distribution of goods in such a manner that we have thereby given the best lot possible to the least advantaged person, we thereby have done the best we can do. Now, there's a point at which, obviously, I mean, it's, it's, it's always a delicate balancing act. There's a point at which you, you cut down the income of the guy at the top, and finally he says it's not worth it. Uh, I don't want to do this anymore. It's too many problems, too many headaches. Uh, i let somebody else do it and he leaves and you get somebody that's less competent and then the total return reduces and then the guy at the bottom is worse off than he was before. So you've got to find the the optimum point at which the distribution is such that uh, the guy at the bottom is getting the maximum return that one could get under any alternative distribution. Now remember I said at the outset this is ideal theory. Nobody has suggested that it would be easy to get from here to there. But Rawls, I think, would be satisfied if he could get you to admit that, okay, ideally that'd be the best world. That's an enormous accomplishment if you can do that. And then the process by which we gradually induce people to pursue that particular solution in the interest of justice could be left to others or left to work out gradually over a long period of time. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being idealistic, I don't think, no, no, nothing wrong with projecting a solution which, like Plato and Kant and Rawls, is an ultimate ideal. Uh, Bertrand Russell once said about Christianity, the only problem with it was nobody had ever tried it. And by that he meant what Christianity sets up is an ideal that nobody can live up to. Nobody can. even the. The greatest saints will tell you that. Mother Teresa will tell you that. I sin all the time. But that doesn't at all defeat the notion of Christianity. It still is a a beautiful, objective ideal for one to govern their life by. If Rawls can provide adequate demonstration that this would be the most just of all possible worlds, then he's accomplished a lot. And, and that uh, he can't give us the nuts and bolts to get there, I don't think is any reason to uh, repudiate what he has accomplished. Okay?
6: Uh, a quick question on, on that last point. You brought that example of the CEO salary, I guess. Or It's hard to imagine a situation where it is not that uh, the opposite of that principle is conceived as just, that the lowest person is not getting a fair or max min principle you were talking about. Uh, it's hard to imagine the, uh, someone arguing that that's not fair. It is more probable to say that the question would be turned as to what decides that distribution, the optimum distribution. For example, a position that free market decides what the CEO has to be paid would be comfortable for all to take. Who decides that optimum position? What mechanism is there to decide that is not at all Obvious in all of this principle. Uh, the only, the measuring stick that Rawls is using,
2: is which of the various various alternatives results in the worst-off individual being the best-off that he could possibly be. Anything else at this point? All right. Let me uh, mention uh, two or three other notions. These are all kind of Rawls buzzwords that, uh, as you work through the books, you'll see these coming up and they play significant roles and they are the things that are associated with Rawls. One notion that you probably have come up with in the first part of the book is the notion of reflective equilibrium, which is a little tricky and I think a little controversial or at least sometimes dubious. Uh, But the notion is this. Rawls says... When we come up with our principles of justice rationally, they should be consistent with our intuitive notions of what is right. That is to say, if we came up with first principles that somehow recognized slavery or religious persecution or something, he says, we would be suspect that our reasoning process would be corrupt. So that what the notion of reflective equilibrium, and those of you with with any experience in philosophy may recognize this as coherence theory, that there, there must be a consistency between our principles and our sense of what is right. So that if we come up with principles of justice, let me let me just go back to an example that might be suggested, implicitly suggested. Let let's suppose we come up with principles of justice which say we we're going to tax all the CEOs down to a uh, manageable level in which uh, they're they're making 25 uh, percent on average of what they're now making. If we decide that uh, that doesn't cohere with our sense of justice, then we got to. We've we got to go back and reconsider, but, but it, it can cut either way. We can go back and we can say, because there is that inconsistency there, that incongruence, it may be that our principles are wrong, or it may be that our intuitions are wrong. One example that's used, let's suppose uh, after uh, Jefferson writes the Declaration of Independence, he gets an email from a slave that says, I'm delighted to read your new document, and it's great because... It means I'll be free. And he says, by the way, I know you've got a lot of slaves. And so Jefferson now has this conflict in his mind. His principle tells him that uh, slavery is okay, uh, but his intuitions tell him that it's bad. Okay. And so he's got to somehow reconcile this conflict. It, it may mean that he will change his principles to permit slavery, but more likely it will be that he will say, uh, my prejudices are incorrect. They are the product of uh, faulty, selfish thinking, and therefore I'm going to free the slaves because the principle makes more sense than the, uh, the life I've led. But one way or the other, he doesn't get any peace in his mind until he works out that reconciliation. And so this is what Rawls means by reflective equilibrium, that there's got to be some sense in which the principles that you pursue and the, the comfort level of pursuing those principles is uh, copacetic. And, and one of the practical implications here is if that's not true, you're not going to be able to sell your principles anyway. So this is one aspect of the notion that uh, any system of justice must be uh, something that you will be able to effectively sell to the citizenry as a whole question yes uh
4: that seems inconsistent with his veil of ignorance criteria because my intuitions are not going to be from a veil of ignorance they're going to be from the particular natural endowments that i have
2: this 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 does not have this particular process does not occur behind the veil of ignorance
4: yeah i realize that but it's it seems to me that if i come up with principles using the veil of ignorance criteria i'm going to almost always have conflicts with my intuition because under veil of ignorance i'm sort of assuming a worst case scenario nothing particular to my to the particular endowments that i actually end up with but my intuitions are going to be very dependent on my particular circumstances and my
2: natural endowments i agree i this is this is one of the, the this thin ice here in terms of the theory i think uh uh, some some have said that all all this suggests is that we will go through a process of rationalization by which we will then modify our principles and so we're comfortable with them because we happen to be bigots or whatever we happen to be. Uh, Raw speaks to that and, and, and says you can't use a reflective equilibrium in this sort of frivolous way in which you just sort of go through the motions of, of getting some sort of coherence. But, I mean... Reflective equilibrium is sort of a stopgap device for testing. It's not, it's not the theory itself. It's, it's more in saying if we apply the theory, and we, the theory is going to be strictly Kantian logic of these are the principles we come up with. Uh, reflective equilibrium says, having gone through the intellectual process of, of coming up with these principles, if they just don't mesh with our intuitions we're probably in trouble, and at least we've got to think long and hard about where we've gone wrong here. So I think it's a, very, it's a weak device for testing, but nonetheless, I think it's correct for him to say that unless you can get some sort of peace in your own mind that way, the issue of stability of a community will be in jeopardy, that uh, if you're asking people to follow principles which are dissonant to their innermost feelings... You probably are going to be creating an, an unstable situation, and, and to that extent, I see some legitimacy in it. Two more things, and we'll we'll do it. We'll stop. There's a reference in in the first part, and this is, was developed first in uh, political liberalism. Now it's uh, playing an increasing role in in the the theoretical development of what Rawls calls the overlapping consensus. He says the, the political conception is supported by the reasonable, although opposing, religious, philosophical, and moral doctrines that gain a significant body of adherence and endure over time from one generation to the next. This is, I believe, the most reasonable basis for political and social unity available to citizens of a democratic society. This is not terribly, I don't think it's as big a point as Rawls seems to think it is means I'm probably wrong but if you think of various theories of the good as as circles that that interrelate so that you've got in t- terms of religion you've got uh Judaism here Catholicism here Protestantism here Hinduism here and so forth and all these circles are are converged in the center and the fact of the matter is that a large part of them are irreconcilable but but Rawls would say there is a core point here in which perhaps they will all agree on the importance of religious liberty. That the overlapping consensus is, notwithstanding our strong adherence to our own views, we nonetheless are prepared to recognize a comparable experience of others in order to ensure that our particular pursuits are well protected. And this, this point at which there is this overlap is... Uh, the point at which the core notion of what will be stable in a society takes root. I'm not sure it adds that much to the general theory, but nonetheless it's something that you will see coming up in the book from time to time as another basis for stability in the, the, uh, the system that people uh, share common values, notwithstanding the fact that they may not share a wide range of values far in excess of those they do share. All right, final, final notion, and one that uh, I found particularly intriguing and interesting that Rawls developed late in his life, and that is the notion of public reason. Rawls says, and he says it primarily in terms of the, the big political questions, forming first principles and the like, that when we make arguments, we must use public reason. We must use reason which is commonly shared and recognizable, by diverse people, irrespective of their independent, their are separate, and, and the spirit theory is the good. Uh, let me give you a concrete example again from the religious realm. Uh, there was a decision handed down by the Supreme Court a number of years ago, captioned Bowers versus Hardwick, in which the Supreme Court sustained uh, Georgia laws prohibiting uh, consensual homosexual acts. And uh, it's a terrible opinion. It's a bad result, but it's also a terrible opinion because the Supreme Court, among other things, cites as authority uh, biblical passages as supportive of the notion that homosexuality can be prohibited. This is not public reason. This is not reason that can be commonly shared by people of a wide range of views. Incidentally, this decision has now been overruled, so don't worry about it. But Ironically... There is historical reference that I came across some time ago of the Roman Emperor Caligula who was also opposed to homosexuality, and he was opposed to homosexuality because he said homosexuals caused earthquakes. Now this is a public reason. It may be dead wrong, but nonetheless it's the sort of reason you can legitimately use in public debate. If, in fact, that's true, then that would be a good reason to prohibit homosexual activities. And that's the distinction that needs to be understood here, that when we are debating in the public sphere, we must use arguments which are acceptable and common and appreciated by all of the participants, not arguments that that are just uh, unique and uh, common and appreciated and respected by people of a particular theory of the good, particular persuasion. Rawls says when he develops that, and you'll see in the book when he develops, when, when he gets into public reason, that he he doesn't push it beyond the big questions of uh, political justice. Uh, but I don't think it forecloses the possibility that one could use them at the at a lower level of decision-making, whether in the courts or elsewhere, in resolving disputes by using not arguments that, that are only persuasive to those people who share a theory of the good. And that has become a strong focal point of Rawls's work, or did, in his, his latter years, and uh, uh, became a pretty big lightning rod for a lot of people who rejected categorically as unacceptable, but nonetheless uh, take it as a very serious element of his theory.
7: Yeah. Was, wasn't that will break down in a situation where you have uh, two or three parts of society essentially living in different social realities in other words, suppose there is no agreed upon central group of facts let alone rational uh... opinions about those facts
2: give me an example can you? Uh,
7: people who believe in evolution versus people who believe the earth is uh... six thousand years old
2: well on what on, on what basis do the competitors hold these views? If they hold them based on the Bible tells me so, then that's not a public reason. If they base them on a scientific thesis, even if it's one that is controverted, uh, it would be legitimate to you. Well, them.
7: I mean, that's that's the whole point. Not everyone accepts uh, realizes that science is empirical reasoning. They think it's just another group of opinions. Well, I, I think that's, that's
2: true. Even, and I in think our, even in our Congress. I mean, that's true, too. I think that uh, part of the Kantian element of Rawls's theory is that we assume that people who will participate with us behave rationally and who appreciate the distinction between uh, fact-based information and faith-based or some other-based, whatever you want to call it, data, which cannot be empirically verified. And it's it's only that which can satisfy the the stronger test of uh, truth, which is to be taken into account. Okay. As I say, a lot of people don't think it's it, it's not legitimate to limit uh, debate to public reason. That if if people want to uh, argue their uh, religious sentiments in terms of uh, legitimacy of legislation, they should be allowed to do that. And Rawls never really bit the bullet on that when you got below the, the level of first principles. Uh, I think ultimately, ideally in a society, you would want to do that.
6: Could you, as a matter of clarification, use an example in which a uh, Rawlian position would be different from a, let's say, in a spectrum of views from a libertarian position?
2: I don't know, I don't know enough about libertarianism. I'm sorry. I'm,
6: I'm thinking of, let's say, just take the example of a campaign finance issue, which is was just the subject of Supreme Court.
2: Yeah. I've been thinking about that, as a matter of fact. I think Rawls's answer on the Supreme Court decision would be that the error here is to treat corporate entities as if they were equivalent to individuals, and that the Constitution protects the rights of individuals to participate fully in the political process, maybe to spend their money freely. I mean, I, I think probably that Rawls would see a distinction between Bill Gates putting a million dollars into a campaign and Microsoft putting a million dollars into a campaign. That, that insofar as Bill Gates had honestly earned his million dollars, and I think that could change in a religion world, but so long as it was his piece of the pie and he wants to use it in political participation, he can do that. But to the extent that we're allowing artificial entities which only have existence because we give them existence by law to become participants in the political process, it's difficult to to justify any, any more than corporations can have can exercise free religion or can vote or do anything of a wide panoply of things protected by the Bill of Rights I, I qualify this all by saying and for this reason I shouldn't even speak to it at all I have not read the opinion I've only read the outcome of the opinion and and some commentary about it but uh, I I think the in that case the solution would would be a relatively simple one of saying Where the Supreme Court went wrong, and it went wrong a long time ago, was to treat corporate entities as having equivalent constitutional rights with private parties.
6: But would it be a role in position in support of a public financing of of campaign, for example? Yes, he
2: does. In fact, he's come out on that, as a matter of fact. Uh, Back when the Buckley decision was hot, he expressed some very strong views about the importance of leveling the playing field to uh, prevent distortions in the electoral process.
5: Just a point of um, clarification, is the requirement that public reason be used um, really a way of reinforcing existing societal structures, or does reflective equilibrium prevent that from happening and allow society to move forward?
2: Do that again. Yeah. The, the, the my part. point is
5: that if we have to use public reason, it seems that we're reinforcing whatever the existing understanding of public reason is, so that... If society needs to move forward, perhaps the only way to do that is through reflective equilibrium, where we go back and revisit the social contract.
2: Let me try to use I'm just making an example here. Let's say the question is whether the municipality should support a symphony orchestra. If you make the argument, I like symphony orchestras, and a lot of my friends like symphony orchestras, that's not a public reason if you say symphony orchestras are good because it improves all of our citizens and making them more sensitive to beautiful things, and that reflects in the way they treat each other and all the rest of it, then we're making a public reason argument. Now, there can be a wide variety. I'm not suggesting there's only one public reason argument in context or only one non-public reason argument. I'm, I'm just saying we, class, we categorize these in terms of whether they are non-public in the sense that they are serving the interest of a particular group Or, they are public in the sense that they are the arguments which are designed to address the needs of the public.
5: I guess my point is: Do we revisit that each time a decision is made, or do we rely on what was? I I think. I
2: yes, this whole thing is a constant. Is an act in progress all all the time, And, and as a matter of fact, obviously, I've just been hitting some highlights. If 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 on the basis of the original position. We decide that the the best way to take care of the poorest segment of our society is to do this, and we come up with some welfare program. It's constantly subject to revision. We can always go back and reconsider and reconsider, do it better, find out things we didn't do right, find out things we didn't anticipate would play out the way they did. Uh, This is always an act in progress. There's no point at which we end up with ultimate answers in which we resolve these matters, and that's that's particularly at the the level of policy-making decisions
3: isn't the um the interesting counter example or sort of the diff- i guess the challenge for him was martin martin luther king i mean and he's got that yes. long footnote because certainly dr King's rhetoric was a religious rhetoric or it was a i mean he called a christian nation right, to its right. to its conscience, right. and had he made his argument in the rhetoric of public reason, it would have been less arguably less less powerful. But
2: I, th- but I think what Rawls does is to take Martin Luther King's arguments and show that notwithstanding the fact that ostensibly he has this religious patina on them beneath and sometimes explicitly he's making public reasoning arguments.
3: And and toward the end, I mean his rhetoric shifted, you know, to the extent he got, you know, was looking at the war in Vietnam yeah. and all of that. Exactly. He moved, but in you might argue that he was less exciting at that point, and it was far more compelling when he put it in um, the, language, the language that he put it in at the, at the beginning.
2: That's true, and, and certainly more appealing to the people who shared his theory of the good. I don't know that he would have many uh, Jewish listeners who would be particularly moved by him expressing this in terms of Christian doctrine. You know, he, he limits his effectiveness. He may be more effective in terms of the people who share that particular theory of the good. Uh, but but he's making a choice there in terms of uh the scope of his appeal, appeal and uh if uh he's in that fashion is delimiting the reach of his influence uh there might be a price to be paid at some point Anything else Did he grade us at any point Sorry Did he great us at any point grade grade us? us Rawls no he didn't he didn't do that I mean there's some people that say the whole theory is nothing more than a rationalization for American democracy. I mean, you, you get these extremes of the left and the right. Uh, the, the people on the right say, ah, he's socialist, communist, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Uh, people on the left say, ah, he doesn't do that much when, when the smoke clears, not much has changed. They're both wrong, I think. I think he would say that in large measure, United, the democracy in this country has achieved certainly first principle liberty. And probably second, the first part of the second principle, better than any other civilization has ever done. Uh, but nonetheless, I think he's uh, arguing in favor of some very radical changes in terms of achieving a more just society. But he he never he he never does speak specifically about this country like uh, as. Uh, Iris suggested that there are times in which he will get into particular examples and and the example back here about uh, publicly funded elections he gets into that and he gets into the civil rights movement he he gets in, He uses Abraham Lincoln a lot too in terms of his appeals and he's he 's a very strong supporter of, of lincoln 's uh, rhetoric in terms of what he achieved regarding fair equality, but in terms of an overall critique of the country, he doesn 't touch that. I think it's implicit, yeah. I, I think it's implicit. And, and as I, I said, I think when you, when, you, when you work through the theory, there are parts of it in which it's very familiar. The, the first principle stuff is, is not that far from what we all accept and, I think, generally approve and, and, and are proud of in terms of our recognition of the principle of liberty, equal protection. Uh, he's going to push us a lot further than we've chosen to go in that regard. And then, well, then when he gets to the, prim- the distribution of primary social goods, as he puts it, then we're getting to the hard part.
1: I think this might be a, a good moment to, to finish up for this evening. Um, two purposes of the Baker Center were well served tonight. The one purpose is to collectively try and enhance our understanding of what Senator Baker believes to be a unique system of governance that's young, potentially vulnerable, and probably the best in the world. And one way to enhance our understanding about it is to look deep into the political philosophy upon which the system may be built. And we've done that. The second purpose of the Baker Center is to bring the university and the community together. And again, we've done that well tonight in part by who's here, but also our attempt to podcast this with the assistance of the Knox County Public Libraries, to a broader audience in the community. And to those there who are, I apologize for our uh, initial efforts to try to figure out how to do podcasting well when you have an audience who likes to ask questions and we can't get mics that work there quickly enough. We hope those folks and all of you here will come back next week for the next part of the story. Um, I think we're well-situated with both the first part of the book and the presentation tonight to go on to see the next part of the story. And I haven't read beyond the first part. I'm intrigued by the first part. Um, I had trouble with the first part. I think I've got a better handle on the first part. Now I think I'm better ready to go on to the second part and I'm excited to do that and I'll even be more excited if you'll all come back next week and join us again. Special thanks to Professor Cook. I can't think of a better person to start our university community dialogue about the political philosophy of John Rawls than Professor Cook. Thank you very much, Joe.
0: That was an episode of a community study of Justice as Fairness by John Rawls in a five-part series sponsored by Knox County Public Library and the Baker Center for Public Policy. The music is Random Opus by Robert A. Wolf, available at music.mevio.com. This work is published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License Copyright 2010 by Knox County Public Library. To find the other recordings in this series, plus more library podcasts, please visit knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G.